формат конференции дает мне возможность избежать излишнего политеса и необходимости говорить округлыми, приятными, но пустыми дипломатическими штампами. И как всякая война, война холодная оставила нам и не разорвавшиеся снаряды, образно выражаясь. Имею в виду идеологические стереотипы, двойные стандарты, иные шаблоны блокового мышления. Moscow sends mixed signals claiming to pull back some troops from the Ukrainian border and indicating an openness to additional diplomacy, while at the same time taking steps to recognize the independence of Russian-occupied areas of the Donbass. The United States uses a novel tactic to wrong-foot Vladimir Putin by declassifying and making public intelligence anticipating Russia's next moves. And Ukraine, still in Russia's crosshairs, braces for a reinvasion that may or may not come. So what happens now? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, where he's hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Collins is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of Russian studies program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you again, and a big hello to Ivan and Finn. Yeah, it's good to see you again, Brian. Good to see you. I know you've been busy. So, Michael, there's been a lot of moving pieces out there this week. Russia claimed to pull back some truce, but NATO and the U.S. say there is no evidence of this. The U.S. today uh, outright accused Putin of lying about, uh, accused Russia of lying about this. Sergei Lavrov, meanwhile, says diplomacy is not exhausted. From my foxhole, it's pretty unclear uh, just exactly what there is to negotiate about at this point. And the Russian state Duma this week passed a resolution calling on Putin to recognize the independence of the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics in the Russian-occupied areas of eastern Ukraine. Michael, how do you determine the latest developments? We've both been in the camp that expects an invasion to happen this month. Has anything happened that changes this opinion for you? Yeah, the short answer is no. I actually see events sadly proceeding on the trajectory that I've been anticipating and discussing with you all along in previous times we met. The disappointing reality is that uh, most of the evidence we have, in fact, all the evidence we have is pointing in the same direction, that there's not likely to be a diplomatic resolution. There doesn't look to be a compromise on the horizon. And that, you know, Moscow's either going to pocket what gains they feel they've made and back off, right? Which actually isn't looking very likely to me. Have they made any gains? Well, I mean, people argue that Russia can just declare victory and, you know, that Putin can just declare victory because he uh, got some benefits. I don't think he has. I don't think he's gotten anything. Yeah, I don't see what those benefits are, yeah. Yeah, I I don't agree with that argument. There's other people who think there's going to be a long-term coercion play, but those people don't understand some of the practical realities of what's involved in applying this kind of military pressure, that you actually can't sustain this kind of deployment for a long period of time. And it loses coercive effects. So coercive credibility really drains. People begin to realize that you're bluffing, right? You can only threaten people with invasion for so long, so many times before they begin to realize that you're probably self-deterred, meaning the risk, the risk for you are very high as well. 
Uh, and, and from a practical standpoint, actually, they're forward deployed right now with a large number of man formations in field camps right on the border. And no, they're not going to sustain this posture. Either they're going I, to pull back or they're going to do something with these forces. Let, let me drill down on that a bit, Michael, because this is actually interesting. I mean, just how how long can Russia sustain this? Yeah. So, OK, so just to make clear, Russia doesn't have to invade. Yeah. But my view is in terms of the military posture that currently have. And they are in a position to conduct a large-scale military operation. The optimal timing for that is dwindling, first. Second, troops in these conditions begin to quickly lose morale, all right? Third, there become real issues with readiness in being in sustaining this kind of deployment. So if they wanted to pull back, they'd return the equipment back to staging locations, and probably pull back the actual troops. Yes, they can repark it. In fact, I think a good telltale sign is we'll see what they do after the 20th of this month. I think that's going to be very indicative. Right now, every indication that you can look to suggests that that's a military preparing to invade Ukraine. Like That is very clear, and there's no doubt about it. They have brought everything and positioned it in such a way that indicates that this is very, very real. How, but how long can they stay there? Are we talking weeks, months? So I would say practically weeks. Weeks. Um, okay. You know, of course, you can keep troops parked like that realistically for months, but it's nonsensical. It, it's, really, it's really damaging to the force itself, and it's pointless as a threat because once you keep it there for months, you know what everybody's going to say that, oh, this is just a coercive play to put pressure on Ukraine and, and that actually Russia doesn't intend to invade. So we're talking weeks. So we're talking the end of this month. Now you noted the twentieth of February is that as the kind of one of the dates we should be watching. What happens after that? That is when the Russian military exercises in Belarus are scheduled to wrap up. Why is that? Is that why you point to that date? Uh huh. Because Belarus is full of Eastern military district units. They're either going to withdraw back to Russia, and we'll see where they withdraw back into Russia because they might not go back to the Eastern Military District at all, right? The Russian Far East, they might withdraw five feet away from Ukraine in Russia somewhere, or they might stick around. And, you know, I'm gonna bet you some money right now that there's gonna be a meeting between Putin and Lukashenko where Lukashenko sort of asks Russian forces to stay. Yeah. And Russians play this off as their military technical response because they're unsatisfied with the US response answer to their demands for security guarantees. And people will say, uh-huh, Russia doesn't really intend to invade. It's gonna leave some Iskander missile battalions in Belarus, and it's gonna result in a permanent occupation of Belarus. So, and all I'm gonna say is that's probably true, but that's also a very big head fake. The, the reality is that, that I don't I don't think that that's, that's going to be how the situation unfolds. Yeah, no, the, I mean, I just wrote a piece that went out yesterday for the Atlantic Council about the, looking at the Belarus piece of this and that, you know, the fears that there are in the, on the NATO's front line in Poland and the Baltics, that they, they think this is going to be a permanent, a permanent troop presence in Moscow, in, in Belarus. I mean, and regardless of how the Ukraine thing plays out, and again, we both expect the invasion to happen. Um, and I, you know, we, we obviously think we're right. I obviously think you're right. But if it, if it doesn't happen, Putin has said, himself up here to get a pretty big consolation prize um, in the form of a permanent occupation of Belarus, no? Yeah. I mean, look, either way, the Russian forces are likely to stay in Belarus in yeah. some capacity after this. But I believe both things will be true, meaning there is very likely going to be an invasion. And 
Hey, this is a testable prediction. I just want to be clear. I'm not yeah. one of those people that kind of hees and haws and hedges their arguments and says, well, you're, you're you putting know, yourself, you're putting yourself out there. Uh, yeah. Months from now, blah, blah, blah. Right. This is like pretty testable prediction in the sense of we will know. Right. I think by the end of the month, what they intend to do. Yeah. I don't yeah. believe in any of this long term grind economic coercion business to lobby bar you. I think they want to believe that that's the case. That's the best way they can square the circle of what's visible on the ground in terms of Russian uh, uh, force posture and uh, the demands, but without without having to without having to make peace with a proposition that Russia Russia is really considering a large scale military operation. Now, this claim by the Russian defense ministry that troops were pulling back when there's no evidence of that. What what was that? Had well, they're they... recapturing the narrative. I mean, here's the truth. I think that the the policy of maximum disclosure did create a real challenge for Russia in how they were trying to shape the narrative and the potential cost belly. And there was, in my view, I think, like all strategies have diminishing returns, right? Mm -hmm. And my view, that strategy had diminishing return for us, and it was very visible last week when various people kind of suggested that something might happen on February 16th, even though that's, that wasn't actually a, an, an official position, I think, anywhere here in D.C., and the media ran with it. And yeah, well, I thought the media got way ahead of the administration yep. on that. Quite yep. frankly. If you listen carefully to what the administration was saying. Yep. yep. The administration wasn't really saying that media kind of made a bit of an own goal there. Fine. So long story short, all, all you saw Monday was Russia calling back the narrative. That's it. They were simply restructuring the narrative. And a lot of people bought it because people are desperate for any sign that there might be de-escalation and there might be prospects for peace. Right. And for diplomacy. And they sort of saw this meeting with Lavrov and Shoigu that was very you know, obviously staged for the purpose of signaling right. and, and thought, oh, OK, there's going to be de-escalation. And I found that somewhat ridiculous to be honest. So first of all, on the Shoigu bit, OK, if you believe that this is a course of play, right, Brian, let me just ask you first order questions and we just bounce it back and forth with mm -hmm. Jason Why would Putin signal that he's now giving up all his leverage in the situation when he supposedly has Ukraine and the West on the ropes, why would he have a meeting with Shoigu suggesting he's going to withdraw in exchange for what? Right. There was no backdoor deal made. So do you believe that Putin, in his current situation, with well over 150,000 troops, has decided he will unilaterally begin giving away his leverage for nothing mm -hmm. at the beginning of the week in exchange for no deal? No, my reaction to watching the meeting with Shoigu and Lavrov was he's lying. <laughs> that was that was I've been watching Putin long enough that you you listen to what he says, but you really watch what he does. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, and by the way, you take what he says with a grain of salt and you watch what he does in his statements with Schultz. He was very clear, by the way. I think folks might have paid attention. He was in, intentionally walking back any notion that there would be a withdrawal because he said, well, you know, it's really conditions based and it depends on the situation on the ground. And it's not entirely up to us at all. And this, that, and the other. He actually very quickly walked back any notion that Russian troops would be withdrawn. All right. And right. And the meeting with Lavrov was also staged. I mean, there was nothing in that discussion. Right. Right. Lavrov. Except for when Lavrov said diplomatic options are not uh, are not exhausted, and Putin said that's good. He, he said that's good, but he said it in a Russian way that meant fine. Like, yeah. Like you know, what I'm saying literally translates as good, but more the yeah. way he said it was sort of fine. Like, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I'll be honest with you, Brent. What do people expect him to say? Do people say Lavrov is going to sit there in front of him on national television and say, you know, we really haven't gotten any traction on our main demands. 
And Putin said, okay, well, I guess we're just going to have to invade Ukraine now. Right. Call, uh, and like he was going to order the invasion of a country on national TV. I mean, that definitely wasn't going to happen. So this was all about narrative. And I want to stick with narrative for a minute, too, because, again, you you, you talked about the, the Biden administration's policy of maximum disclosure and declassifying this intelligence and how it has diminishing returns. And I, I think it's wrong-footed Putin to a degree. I think it's gotten into his head and complicated his plans to a degree. You're right. It hit that diminishing returns because of the media narrative about the 16th when everybody was expecting this to happen. We, of course, are recording this podcast on the 17th, and an invasion hasn't happened yet, so it obviously didn't happen on the 16th. But in terms of narrative, one thing I think the Biden administration did that was actually quite clever is that one way or another, Putin is going to need to manufacture some pretext for this, regardless of how ridiculous the pretext may seem to us. And by putting out that intelligence of just how they planned to create the pretext that they were planning to create this fake video of supposed atrocities. I mean, that has put the signal out to the world. So when Putin creates a pretext, nobody's going to believe it. Um, And in this sense, this strategy was successful in depriving him of a a plausible pretext, no? Sure, absolutely. And depriving him of tactical surprise as well, right? Because by uh, constantly beating the drum that yes, an, an invasion is likely, and yes, there will be a pretext of this type, I think it did force them possibly to improvise or at least uh, push back some of the planning. Now, of course, yeah, it's hypothetical. We don't we don't know what's happening on the on the other end of it, but it seems very clearly that we're in this iterative iterative interaction. And I like the policy of maximum disclosure. I definitely yeah. think it's a bit experimental too. That's very clear. I've never seen so much information yeah. released oh, I'm loving it. Yeah. so quickly by uh, by administration. I know, of course, it was going to have diminishing returns because you have too many brokers, meaning too many admin people talking, and it'll become undisciplined. And eventually, somebody's going to say something like, "I think Putin's going to invade on February 16th," and then and the administration says, "That's not that's not the thing. That's not what's going to happen." But the media right. went off with that. The method. media ran with that. I know. And then when there's no invasion on February 16th, people say, "Well, that wasn't true. Can we trust that anything else is true?" Um, and that's how Russians basically got the ball back. That is, they this week. For the record, has really been their week, but reading the response, their written response to us and what came out in Commerstown, if you were holding out hope that there was going to be a diplomatic resolution to this, and you read the Russian response, if you think the story has a happy ending, you've not been paying attention. Right, right. (laughs) That that is is very, very, very well said. But I think one thing, you know, we both know how Putin loves the element of surprise, Putin loves to be unpredictable, and by predicting a invasion, whether it's on the 16th or just saying it's imminent and leaving it vague. I mean, it's almost like this head game they're playing with Putin. By saying there was going to be invasion on the 16th, they did one thing. They absolutely guaranteed that there would not be an invasion on the 16th or thereabouts, right? So is this does this have value in this sense? By saying an invasion is imminent, Putin doesn't want to prove Biden right Right. So I think what they're doing is they're pushing back the optimal operational timing mm-hmm. for Russian planning and forcing them to adapt. And so they're trying to spoil both part of the plan, but also, most importantly, the narrative and how this goes down politically, how Europeans and other countries perceive it. Right. Because they don't want Russia to drum up successfully some pretext. Right that may be implausible, but nonetheless, European and other countries that are inclined towards it will basically take it or run with it. 
because they don't want to do sanctions or something else. You know how this goes, Brian. It doesn't have to be plausible for, for a lot of countries to use it for their political purposes. Right. Uh, they accused Saakashvili of genocide in 2008 as a pretext for the invasion of, South, of Georgia, and everybody knew that was complete nonsense. Yeah, look, so you see the pretext being built right now, actually, in the last couple of days. I will, will make a wager that in the next several days, you're going to see ramping up of several narratives. Right. You will see one about the prospect of war crimes have been committed in the Donbass. You'll see real skirmishes and escalations tick up, which we've already seen along. We the already see this. Yeah. Yep. yep. And you'll see efforts to essentially get Ukrainian forces to respond with artillery fire. Right. Right. Russians may make several claims and there may be a real provocation. I mean, I'm not going to speculate what's going to be, but I think you're actually going to see the story develop in the next several days. Yeah. Yeah. And then what they're going to be hoping is that Zelensky uh, behaves like Saakashvili did um, in South Ossetia in 2008 and sends the troops in. And then there's your pretext. I don't think Zelensky's going to do that, though. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't think they need him to do that, Brian. I think uh, I think it's all worse than it looks. And I don't think they need him to do any of that. So you, you're not you don't think the pretext that, you know, denying them a pretext is, is in any way going to deter an invasion? Yeah. But, I'm sorry to be so gloomy and sad. no, no. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you in Gloom Town here. I I don't see how this ends well at the moment in any way, shape, or form. It's really disturbing. One thing that did puzzle me is um, the Duma's resolution on the DNR and the LNR urging Putin to recognize them. Now, I've been talking to people as you are as well who follow this closely, and a lot of people are pushing back against, he's not going to outright invade. He's just going to basically either annex or recognize the DNR and the LNR. And my, my response to that is, why would he go through all this trouble and incur all this cost to get something he already has? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. What do you, I mean, why do you think the Duma did this with the DNR and the LNR? And what role does that play in all of this? Simple. So he could be good cop this week. He has several days where all he's doing is playing good cop, Brian. You mean and his I'll be honest, a resolution. If, if I had, and I, I'm never going to, but if I had the, the intention to invade another country and I didn't want to be blamed for it and try to structure a narrative that somehow placed the blame on another person, basically he's, he's putting it together events that make Putin the good cop in the story, right? So the reason why he said no to that from a practical standpoint is obvious. Why would he recognize DNR, LNR, basically withdraw Russia from the Minsk agreements, give away all his chips of leverage over Ukraine, right, and get nothing for it with a silly proposition for Russia to do? He essentially annexes or the separatist territories and in exchange for nothing. No, of course he wasn't going to do that. What, although the law itself, by the way, was a pressure point. So it's both positive and negative, right, because they were using the petition right, uh -huh. as a way to pressure Europeans, to threaten Europeans, that if they don't pressure Zelensky on Minsk, then Moscow might actually, okay. might actually do this, right? So it was a useful pressure point for the Europeans. The fact that they gave it up, and he said, I'm not going to sign it, right? He said, well, it's popular with Russian people, but I'm not going to do it, is, is bad in two ways. First, it allowed him to just easily play good cop in the story, because later on when, when this was written, you know, Moscow will say, Putin didn't want to do any of these things. Look, he rejected these bills. He was the least hawkish of all the people in the Russian establishment. Why would he have wanted to invade Ukraine, right? But also it shows you that they've given up the pressure game with Europeans. 
Mm. Meaning they don't, they don't, they're not pushing. Well, yeah, because Minsk is dead to everybody but Putin right now. Nobody but nobody. Europeans, I, Americans, Ukrainians, nobody's I, taking Minsk seriously. I, I have bad news. It's dead to him too. Mm. <laughs> I have bad news. It's dead to him too. I, I think a lot of people have been interpreting it so long. You know, we've talked about this before. They thought that Russia's real goal is to get Ukraine pimple in Minsk. And I got to tell you, I think they decided long ago that that's not what, that, that was a solution that, expired in its potential efficacy quite a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree. I mean, I've long been saying Minsk is dead. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, if Putin recognized or annexed the DNR and the LNR, no Ukrainian politician would say this out loud, but they probably would be glad that that pressure point is removed. But I know, I, I mean, I know you're quite the scholar of deterrence. Michael, I know this is one of your favorite subjects, so I want to throw you something that you're going to like. And a very simple question. Can Putin be deterred? Is there anything that can deter Putin right now from invading Ukraine? In, in general, absolutely. Of course, it can be deterred. In fact, in, okay. in, across the board, you know, in name of our interactions with Moscow, I think we're deterring them perfectly fine. And of course, we believe that. If we didn't, then we would have no logic for many of the measures we take in NATO and on uh, military activities, reinforcing U.S. Uh, troops on the Eastern Front. Yeah. yeah, all that. So, so yeah, of course, it can be deterred. But on your specific question, can he be deterred from invading Ukraine? My answer to that is no, because the only deterrent we have is deterrent by punishment, which isn't great to begin with. And the only form of deterrence by punishment we have is economic, which has a terrible track record of deterrence, particularly in this specific case, right? Mm -hmm. It's done a terrible job in 14 and 15. And in general, we wouldn't expect it to work very well. When it comes to countries pursuing core interests, where leaders are deliberating on use of force, Economic sanctions are just not likely. Right. And this mind. is a core interest for Putin. Right. Yeah. And remember, those two problems will deterrence by punishment, particularly one, one, one in this current situation we're going to discuss. And I'll be brief because I don't want anybody who's right. listening to immediately get bored and zone out and say, oh, God. Nobody, nobody, zone out. nobody zones out when you're talking. Mike. Anything but a discussion <laughs> on deterrence. So first, you know, the first problem with deterrence by punishment is it's up to your opponent to decide how much is enough. You don't actually know how much is enough, right? It's your opponent who decides how much is enough to quit. And you don't know if what you're threatening is the right amount, right? Mm -hmm. It turns by denial, you, you have a sense of military posture and you think you can win the battle. You could deny them their initial objectives, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns by punishment, it's for them to decide how much pain is enough for them to quit. And you have no idea if the amount of pain you're, you're going to apply is sufficient. So this is issue one. And as you know, Russia is a pretty resilient country and quite tolerant of, of pain and economic punishment. Mm -hmm. right? that's, that's issue one. Issue two, big problem of resolve. With deterrence by denial, you're there. People know they're going to run into you. Just, just for people that don't know, deterrence by denial, that, that would in practice mean effectively putting U.S. troops on the Ukrainian-Russian border and saying, if you take this, you're at war with us. That's what that's what you would mean by deterrence by denial, which is something we're obviously are not going to do. Yeah, no, we're going to do it, but I mean, just in general. So denial is denial of benefits. You actually have the ability to deny the other country right. the benefit of their actions. So in this case, if we're discussing a Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have no ability to deny Russia the benefit of their action, so we only have the ability to punish for it. And the second problem we get into with punishment is a basic issue of resolve, which is right. it's up to the other side to believe that you will do it. And right. guess what? In a case when you have to do something and a bunch of European countries have to do something and you all have to agree potentially on some of those things, not all of them, right? 
And all these things are going to cause economic pain for us as well. Yes, yes. The other side, in this case Russia, may conclude, one, that we will be self-deterred from using economic weapons of that scale because of the blowback and effects on us and our ally. Two, that even if we're willing to do it, our allies will talk us out of it because they won't like the consequences, right? You know, three, that we're bluffing, right? We could be in very much in a case where, you know, they think that we're bluffing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what? There's lots of people here, and especially in Europe, Brian, that think Moscow's bluffing about this invasion. And so, I know. And you I can't know. convince them. I you know. can't convince them. Short of, I honestly think if Russian tanks are halfway to Kiev, I still won't be able to convince them. I'm with you on this. But on past podcasts, Michael, you have said, like, when we look at our sanctions policy towards Russia, yeah, what we did in 2014, 2015, if you put it on a scale of 1 to 10, I think you put it at about a 2. Yes, exactly. And But what we're talking about now is getting up to like an eight or a nine, correct? If we're talking about putting Sparebank on the Treasury's SDN sanctions list, if we're talking about a SWIFT ban, and we're talking about Nord Stream, or export bans of superconductors and, and chips, that's that, that, that's getting up to Iran level sanctions. I hate disappointing. I think it's more of maybe a six to a seven, six, but seven? It's, okay. pretty high. it's quite high. Pretty high. It's quite, it's quite high. high. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing I would say in terms of the resolve is I don't think the not just the administration, the West in general, cannot, I mean, we've basically telegraphed what the sanctions are going to be. I mean, it's, it's it's the level of detail in what kind of sanctions we are going to impose. I've never seen anything like this. We say, well, well there will be sanctions, there will be costs, yada, yada, yada. This time we've basically said exactly what we're going to do, no? Well, Ish, you know, one reason I think that sanctions are, are not a good deterrent is that, first of all, Sanctions are really technically complicated. You know, most of us know how guns work, how conventional weapons capabilities, how nuclear weapons and the like work. Sanctions are very technically complicated and it's very hard to explain to political leaders what's really gonna happen and how it's gonna work. Most people I found, including myself, for sure, in DC, don't understand the half of it, okay? And can you imagine Assume, I can think of a few people in D.C. who understand it pretty well, and sure. we don't know who they are. Sure, sure. But that's, it's actually a very small number. Um, yeah. and, and and even they, just to be clear. Josh, Josh Rudolph, Dan Fried, there's a handful. that, that Eddie Fishman, yeah. But if you get them yeah. into a room, they'll start arguing with each other, too. So <laughs> just to be clear, it's, it's not like there's a holy If you, if you get any two, two or three people in a room in this town, they're going right. to argue. <laughs> you got to start seeing multiple opinions come out. Now imagine trying to threaten this to Moscow, so they might not have at all an appreciation, a full appreciation of how these things will work and what we can do. And the second part of it is some of the tools we are threatening to use, we really haven't used, and we haven't used against a country like Russia. So these are, um, you know, that's kind of experimental economic weapons, or economic weapons that yes, they have been used in cases like Iran, but Moscow might think that, hey, they're too integrated into the, into the global economy and the financial system for these instruments to work in the same way. So there could be a lot of bad assumptions taking place as well. Mm. That's that's part of the reason why I think it's not necessarily going to be a great deterrent, which is not to say, hey, these instruments lie at the best intersection of, you know, something we can do and something that might work. Right. right. So so we just to argue that yeah, they're 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 the right threat to make and they're the thing that we should do. But so folks understand why they're not likely to deter Russia. Right. And right. I think these are very legitimate reasons why, both because of how, how we understand deterrence to operate and also because of the problem with sanctions as a deterrent instrument writ large. Yeah, no, if we impose what we have telegraphed, it would effectively roll it back to the Cold War era in terms of Russian interaction with the with the global economy. We're talking about cutting them off 
in a way that have not been cut off in 30 years. This will definitely choke the Russian economy and, and it'll, it'll create major disruptions. I am not fully seized of, of the effects and the cascade effects it will have, Brian. I have to tell you, that's why I said it's such a, it's such a complex issue that, to me, adding the main Russian banks, like Sberbank, VTB, to the U.S. sanctions list is, is a bit of an economic nuclear approach, and I don't know what all the collateral damage and effects will be. Right. Um, you know, I'm not talking about shiny bubbles that don't matter, like Nord Stream 2. I'm talking about this kind of really big deal stuff. So it's beyond my intellectual remit to fully right. appreciate all the consequences of it. It will have a genuine impact, and some of the sanctions will have an impact on commodity prices here yeah. in Europe, and uh, we will we will all personally, individually feel the yeah. effect of this. And keep in mind something important. That's the first salvo. You know another reason why the terms by punishment sometimes doesn't work? Is they're going to be able to retaliate. So uh, adversaries are far less likely to be deterred by threats of punishment if they think that they can punish you too. Mm -hmm. Okay? And Russia's not without means of retaliation. Not in the economic sphere, although they have some options there, but they have a panoply means of retaliating against us and against European countries. So... You mean yes, cider and the like? All sorts of things, yes. And, and there are key areas of exports where, if not us, Europeans certainly dependent on them. So there is an escalatory ladder here that can happen, right. even though the United States is not going to get involved in a kinetic conflict with Russia, there can be an escalatory ladder. I mean, I could see a scenario where we impose these crippling sanctions. Russia responds with a devastating cyber attack. We respond with an equally dev devastating cyber attack. And then we're then we're at war with Russia for all intents and purposes, even though it's not kinetic in the classical sense. Is this escalatory spiral something you think is a very real possibility? Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's a very serious consideration. So the, to me, the the real issue is not deterring Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I I don't think that's necessarily workable here, and I think that ship has sailed. I think the real challenge is how we're going to handle the follow-on crisis in Europe. It doesn't end in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There's real potential for entanglement here with NATO too. A follow-on crisis. If you play this out, this could, met after, could metastasize. Yeah. Months after, months after, Brian, we could, we could be, we are, we are already dealing with a defining moment for European security, and this is definitely going to be the worst crisis in European security, I think, mean, post-Cold War period. Yeah. But, uh, but if you play this out some months down the line, there is a real potential for escalation beyond Ukraine because of how these retaliatory measures might play out and the choices that countries make. I don't want to say it's to kind of scare people, but just to say, look, these are real considerations and they're real potential knock-on effects, right? Right? Like, it doesn't stop. If there's a Russian invasion in Ukraine, it doesn't, the, the crisis doesn't stop there. Right. It doesn't resolve with a Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's, right. That's the beginning of the next phase of the crisis. Right. This is a, a broader European crisis. Now, there are some retired military officers in Russia that are trying to put the brakes on this. I'm sure you saw General Leonid Ivashov's comments, and I'm sure, sure you, you saw Colonel Mikhail uh, Hodorenek's comments. They, they basically, uh, how do you how do you read that? I mean, some some and these guys are not doves. These are very uh, hawkish retired military officers. Ivashov's irrelevant, and he leads this kind of a group that you know has been calling for Putin's resignation for 15 years. I don't his his commentary. I don't interpret particularly seriously as all that relevant. Hadarionek uh, is a pretty serious person, military yeah. and local circles. I believe that he is simply voicing the concerns of probably some people on the inside within the military 
The military, you know, is often opposed to risky military ventures. Not always, but often, because they're the people that understand what's involved, the actual risks, how much is contingent in war beyond the, you know, beyond the initial move. And, you know, the fact that if anything goes wrong, the military will ultimately be blamed for it by the politicians. Right. But, you know, those concerns that I heard to me are, are actually pretty logical and straightforward. But they were, in many ways, were negative indicators because it suggests that it's once again, to me, another confirming event that people in the Russian military and in military circles, right, analysts who are close to the military, are aware that an invasion is really in the planning and the offing. And right. they are concerned about, guess what? What's one of the number one leading causes of war? War optimism. And they are concerned about war optimism within the political class. If you read Hadarionik's article, he is arguing with banal pundits in Russia who think that they're going to beat Ukraine overnight, right, that this is going to be a cakewalk. And he's trying to sober them up to make it clear to them what the reality in Ukraine looks like. His piece is actually a very good piece. It's like somebody writing, if somebody was to write ahead of the Iraq war, you know. Somebody, some, say, gen, some generals did write ahead of the Iraq yeah, like war. General, yeah. Is, yeah. General Shiseki and others, there were, there were definitely people who said, guess what, we're going to need way more forces than you think we <laughs> than you think right. to occupy and stabilize this country. So unsurprising, there are people in Russia who are, I think, forthrightly making the case to sober some of the overly optimistic uh, people in that system. That is only further validation that, that a strategic decision to invade has, in fact, already been made. If not been made, those people believe believed when they wrote those things, Brian, that that is a very high probability event. Otherwise, they would not be stepping out of line with a system to argue against a war and invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. So why would Khadaryonik wake up one morning and write this article? Unless this was a very realistic probability that he knew the military was being prepared for. Right, right. Why do you think the administration is continuously saying a decision has not been made yet? There is there a strategic reason behind that? The U.S. administration is continuously every time they say war is imminent, war is imminent, war is imminent. But our, our you know, our intelligence tells us that, that that Putin has not made a decision yet. Okay. Well, so so first, the reason for that is Putin can wake up any morning and and call it off. In a personalist authoritarian system, the decisions between Putin and himself looking in the mirror, right? So he right. could wake up one morning and say, you know what, I've decided not to do it, and that's it, and the whole thing is off, right? That's one. You could you could just get. I don't know. Even if, if you think a decision is made, uh, he can change his mind and get cold feet. That's issue one. Issue two, they may genuinely not know that a decision is made. It's just all the indicators suggest that, at least to me, the way I frame this, this is, I believe a decision has been made in principle. Mm -hmm. What I have been waiting to see, which is very hard to tell, is whether or not they have committed to it. Mm -hmm. I believe we will know that in the coming week. Right. That's that, by the way, again, is a pretty testable prediction. I actually think that this week is a go-no-go -no -go decision point for them. I do. I just don't think we're going to know what decision was made literally the minute you know it's been made. We can only observe by state behavior what the decisions were, right? So right. there's always a time lag between observable state behavior and right. when a choice was made in government.
Yeah. Right. And when you say a decision has been made in principle, it makes me think of the, the very ambiguous way that the, the phrase principia is used in the Russian language. But if you think, if you think principia, no talk of principia, only in principle, um, when you, when you say you're expecting to see signals of whether a decision has been made in the coming week, short of an actual invasion in the coming week, what signals will you be looking for in the coming week that would indicate what kind of decision has been made? I mean, I look to see what they end up declaring regarding the future presence status of Russian forces in Belarus post February twentieth. Mm. Right. I mean, I look to see what the which is Sunday. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look to see what the disposition of Russian forces is immediately after February twentieth. Are they withdrawing from Belarus? Where are they withdrawing to? What is the rest of the Russian military doing? Mm-hmm. Um, there will be very clear signs and indicators, and I'm going to be looking to see whether there's a very strong ramp up. Is escalation of violence along the line of control in the Donbass, and more importantly, political signaling and a buildup of what looks very clearly like a pretext of march to war. Mm-hmm. And if Putin goes out and makes some big announcement to the Federal Assembly or makes a big speech, uh, mm-hmm. for example, claiming that there's been some, you know, I don't know, Ukrainian war crime in the Donbass, so they found proof of this genocide thing he's been talking about for a long time. But you know what I'm saying, right, Brian? So I'm going to be looking for those kind of indicators. Right. No, and, and on the on the Belarus piece, thank you. You just gave me the topic for my column for next week with the Atlantic Council because Sunday is the 20th. If those troops don't leave by Sunday, I know what I'll be writing about next week, that we have a certain – and I may just quote you off of this podcast on that, that, that we, we have a pretty good data point uh, on this. And that's a, that's a pretty good way to, to shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and drill a little bit deeper at the Biden administration's strategy of wrong-footing Putin by anticipating and announcing his next moves. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation a fellow at the Kennan Institute and senior editor at War on the Rocks. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility a lot. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Формат конференции позволяет сказать то, что я действительно думаю о проблемах международной безопасности, которыми мы вместе могли бы работать над строительством справедливого и демократического мироустройства, обеспечивая в нем безопасность и процветание не для избранных, а для всех. Благодарю вас за внимание. So the Biden administration, as we discussed in the first half, has been using a very novel tactic against Vladimir Putin. He seems to be trying to get inside his head. The United States has been quickly declassifying, making public intelligence, anticipating Russia's next move, effectively forcing Moscow to rethink its plans. In the most discussed example, Washington released intelligence claiming that Russia was going to create a fake video of Ukrainian atrocities against Russian speakers. Michael, we talked about this uh, in, in passing in the first half, but I want to kind of drill a little bit deeper here into this strategy in the second half and its limitations that you pointed out in the first half. You've already indicated that you, you think this is a, a good strategy. 
to what degree do you think it is actually influencing Putin's military calculus? Well, obviously it's hard to say, you know, who knows, maybe decades, many decades from now, something gets released in the archives where historians mm-hmm. will have access to, to how this whole thing played out. If, if not on the Russian side, certainly on the U.S. side, you know, we have a range of arguments out there. We have people still saying that, you know, Russia never planned to attack. So if they don't, they'll say that what U.S. did had no impact on the Russian calculus because they never intended to do this anyway. It was all a coercive game mm-hmm. uh, or a bluff. I don't think that's true. I just sort of looking at uh, Russian military posture as is right now, I think they definitely have the option of conducting a military operation. And they could have started one. They could have done a rolling start um, mm. as, as early as this week. I definitely see what looks like Moscow on the back foot, particularly in the last two weeks in terms of the narrative, right? The way this uh, crisis is being framed. Because what's happening is, Russia's trying to frame it as a European security crisis, resulting from their demands and their attempt to relitigate the security architecture of Europe, right? The United States is framing this as a crisis around the threat of a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? And a standoff circling that. So we actually are making, we're telling two very different stories about the same thing that's kind of happening on the ground interaction between shows, right? And the question is, which of those is going to win, right? Is it going to be... Uh, the Russian story, because from my point of view, the kind of Russian schema maneuver is in what they're trying to do to, in, in the political framing for us, is they're actually trying to have two separate conversations. One is sucking people into the debate on security architecture and these mm-hmm. demands, right? These sort of what we call the non-starter demands of give me everything short of Alaska and maybe Alaska too, but but sort of this list of this list of demands they've wanted, and it's back and forth with letters. Right. And they're kind of they're kind of dragging things out. And the people who are saying, well, it's good that we're talking because as long as we're talking, we're not fighting. No, it's not true. As long as we've been talking, the Russian military has been building up force and putting them in position. Right. right. So actually, that's not the case. We don't have any evidence that the diplomacy has been delaying a military operation. But there's this other track, which I think they were going to develop. And that track was a pretext for conflict with Ukraine. Right, that they were going to shape and discuss, and it was going to come out suddenly and very quickly. Okay, the United States was trying to sabotage this narrative. It was trying to sabotage this pretext, not knowing when it would emerge. If the Russian timeline for building this narrative, Brian, was two weeks, one week, four days, I mean, I certainly don't know. Right, I focus on the military side of it, but the United States was basically saturating the information environment with releases and comments to the fact that, you know, an invasion might be imminent in order to consistently deny Russia the opportunity to get in there to make this to be, make this narrative. And you know when they got the opportunity to do it? Mm-hmm. This week. This week. And you know how they're structuring why sure you kind of said we're withdrawing forces? The way they're the way they are adapting to our interaction over the past several weeks is they are basically structuring a narrative to the fact that they began withdrawing forces. Ukraine reinforced with all the weapons we've sent them in the last month, which we have in fear of, mm. you know, of a Russian uh, a Russian military operation, right? Ukraine, yada, yada, will seize the advantage to try to retake the Donbass. Now the Russian troops are withdrawn from the border. Like, this is how the story is going to develop. Right. That's how, That's, to develop. That's how they're trying to develop. But it, yes. it, it, as they say in the South, that dog don't hunt. I mean, nobody's really buying it. Well, okay, I get that, but you know, you know who has to buy it? 
first. Russian people have to buy it. You, you're thinking that you and I are the audience, but we are not. Um, the first people have to buy it are people in Russia. You know what? They're very primed for this for this narrative. I have at the outset of this crisis, right? Going back months, the some of the research and polling clearly showed that well over 50% of Russians will believe that whatever conflict breaks out here will be the fault of Ukraine and NATO. Mm -hmm. Independent of the configuration. And, and many others are likely to be supportive of that story as well. So when people are sort of looking at how is Russia going to mobilize people, shape the information environment, I think they fail to realize that's already pre-cooked in a lot of ways. And that the there isn't a tremendous lift for Russian leadership in order to sell the story to their own people. And I think that's the most important narrative first. But they're also gaming a bit with Europeans. Like I said, to this week, they've been sort of playing good cop. Right. Right. And signaling that they wanted to negotiate, that they wanted to continue diplomacy, that they weren't going to break with men's. And that's the interaction with the Europeans. Right. So they're preparing that for the for, for the Europeans on the U.S. side. I mean, it seems to me one of the positive uh, it's in positive outcomes, but po one of the positive things I can glean from this is that the U.S. seems to have learned the lessons of 2014 when they were completely blindsided and when there was a decision not to release intelligence, when the intelligence community did have some inkling about what Russia was up to um, and they didn't release that intelligence, do you see that the U.S. government is basically in the U.S. national security establishment has learned those lessons um, from 2014? Yeah, I think so. But OK, but we were in a very different place in 2014, 2015, I think so, too, in terms of the extent to which there was intelligence capacity focused on Russia, remember? Where's most intelligence focused in 2014? Who was sucking up the bulk of U.S. intellect? The war on terror. Yeah. CENTCOM. CENTCOM. CENTCOM yeah. was a, uh, no offense to colleagues in CENTCOM. Uh, <laughs> they're now, you know, they're now the ones suffering from the research, all, all the research being taken away from them for Indo-PACOM and UCOM. But CENTCOM was consuming all the technical assets and most right. of the personnel, okay? Uh -huh. We didn't see Russia as an adversary threat in 2014. So you can't imagine... It was remotely the a number of people, the technical capability, the assets assigned to the problems right, right. back then. A lot of people blame the intel community for not, you know, first of all, I think wrongly. Secondly, they never supplied the intel community with the resources to do the things they wanted the intel community to do at the time, right? And we learned from that. So I think in many ways we didn't have those capabilities, those capacities. But also, you're very right. We are playing it very differently than we did in 2014 and 2015. And we are playing in a way I've not seen us do it before. It's To me, it's a bit experimental. Now, there's been a lot written about these tiger teams that the administration's putting together. Is this just some new thing that is, is something that's been always going on that the media is just picking up on now? Or is this a kind of an innovation in this crisis, the tiger teams that are kind of playing, that are that are mapping this out for the administrations? <sighs> you know, I, I don't, to me, I don't know the details of some of that inside baseball. From what my personal view of it is that I do think my impression is that this administration, unlike some others in the past, has really done a great deal to plan in earnest for the day after, mm -hmm. the weeks after, and the year after what European security looks like. It's gone out of its way to put in place policies, to put in place sanctions and coordinate them, and to do a number of things, right? That in preparation for how this crisis might develop, okay? And and so, personally, I think this administration actually has done a tremendous job of consulting various experts from different parts of sort of the intellectual and local community, been pretty interdisciplinary approach, 
in trying to get after this problem set, right? And as opposed to being kind of insular and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cloistered and, and trying to keep all the information on the, on, to itself, it's been fairly transparent. In fact, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, you, you kind of joke, I, I sort of I sort of joke, there's probably some people who want to burn their clearance at this point because you can read everything in New York Times and Washington Post for the last two months, right? <laughs> in terms of like, sort of sort of everything the intelligence so, community has. So, so I can you I can get with, with with no clearance and just open source what you would what, what somebody with the TSSCI is getting. You I know? mean the read that way in the New York Times, no offense. It's kind of yeah, I open so, every so, day I open the news. Every day I open every day I open the news, uh I basically reading uh, the president's daily what, brief. What, what looks like it's something coming out of the presidential daily brief. So this is a, a pretty radical departure, I guess. Do you, I mean, this is probably an unanswerable question, but what the hell I'll ask it anyway. When this, when all is said and done, do you expect the European security architecture to be intact? I think what we built together with the Europeans, yes, but European security is not going to look like we knew it. Mm. For sure. And remember last time we discussed, I said that we're going to take a major step back to unfortunately right. familiar time. Yeah. Uh, we are a, going, we're going to have a divided Europe. Right. We're, It'll look different than it did back during you know, parts of the Cold War. All analogies are, of course, imperfect, but they offer some useful, um, at least, models. And uh, I, I do think that uh, European, you know, we're going to keep European security architecture as it was, but the European security order, mm, that's going to be, that's not going to be negotiable. You know, right. the biggest thing this would change, Brian, at least from my point of view, right, mm. is the sort of sense that. That, that we sort of won the Cold War and got to shape security in Europe afterwards, that's going to go away. Mm. It's going to come go back to being contested. That's mm. the reality of it. Like, we'll still feel, of course, that we won the Cold War and all that, um, certainly ideologically, but, but that's going to get very contested. So the and, question is going to be, where is that line going to be drawn? Is it going to be drawn along Ukraine's western border, eastern border, or down the Dnieper River? Is that the big question that's 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 out there? If we're going to look at a divided Europe, that's basically the only outstanding question that we're being that's being fought over at the moment. Yeah. Well, I'll take you this way. Let's take us take ourselves out of the terrain of Ukraine and not think of it as much geographically, but think of it as politically. Right. We're going to go back um, to a time where European security is fundamentally at risk and contingent. Because we're going to be in a place where, yeah, I've been I've been harping on this for a while, but now it's now to me it's increasingly looking like it's getting traction, which is, you know, the principal military actor in Europe outside of NATO is Russia, and it's a country that does not stakeholder in European security architecture, right, in security arrangements or security outcomes, and that's going to come to the forefront, and it's going to really change the context of decision and choices countries make. What are Swedes going to do? What are Finns going to do, right? Other countries were going to look at their situation and start thinking about European security differently, and, and and certainly for us as well. So that's what I mean. I mean, the politics of security in Europe are going to change after this. And mm -hmm. we'll, we'll not be able to pretend that the annexation of Crimea was like sui generis, that this was a you right. know, tremendous anomaly. Right? We won't be able to talk about it in this way. Or that the Russia-Georgia war was something that Bush administration together with Saakashvili screwed up. Which, between me and you, I, I think they did. But nonetheless, what, what I would say is that we're not going to be able to talk about these conflicts and this history in this way. Yeah, Right. They'll be all part of a, a coherent narrative that led to this, this point. Just like the origin of the Cold War was a coherent narrative that led to a, a specific point. Is that is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, well, I think we're going to think a lot harder about how we got here from the end of the Cold War. And most importantly, we're going to be we're going to start talking about the future. Because for right. the longest time, we've had a discussion of kind of how to manage this, right? Right. But at a certain point, the problem becomes so big that it doesn't feel like it's going to be just managed easily with uh, with various half measures and the like. So we have to really rethink European security. And we have to rethink how does, you know, how does Europe fit moving forward into U.S. strategy, which wanted to focus on Asia Pacific and China, had slated Europe as a secondary theater, and up until this point had been trying to park the Russia relationship on the key. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a fair depiction. Yeah, that is a very strategy. And and we're going to have to I think we have to rethink some of that. Certainly not, you know, the fact that China's first. Uh, but as I always say, you know, it, it was never going to be China only. Right. It was probably going to be China mostly. But how much that mostly means, what's the gradation between Russia and China in terms of U.S. prioritization that I think we're going to have to renegotiate. Yeah, no, Michael. I'd like to say you, you, you and I turned out to be, and others, uh, Andrea, others turned out to be right about this. Although, at what cost is 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 the question? We're getting what we wanted, but we're getting it at, at great cost. I want to hold off because I don't know necessarily that you know they're right yet. It's just things are looking in the like they're heading that direction. Yeah. The only other thing I say is, well, I spent a lot of time last year arguing for the prioritization of Russia and taking it seriously as a challenge, as an adversary, as a persistent threat. And I'm really very much in the be careful what you wish for now phase yeah. of this conversation. Oscar Wilde said there's two great tragedies in life. The first one's not getting what you want, and the second one's getting it. Yes. Yeah, no. now, now, I'm now in the second one. Yeah, we got, yeah I, I think I'm right there with you. Uh, to take us off the air, I just wanted to quote quickly from a, a, a column that got my attention in the New York Times this week by Max Fisher. Um, and he, uh, Max Fisher wrote a uh, quote that each side is trying to convince the other that, that the price of conflict is too high. It's a complex game with deliberate ambiguity, raising the risk of lethal mis miscalculation. And he poses two questions. Would, would a Russian invasion bring Moscow more reward than downside? And the second question is, would the West have less tolerance than Russia for the pain of Biden's proposed sanctions and abandon them? If Moscow can convince Washington that the answer is yes, to both questions, then Biden and his allies would, in theory, be forced to conclude that they are better off delivering what concessions will keep Russia from launching a war. But if Washington can persuade, persuade Moscow that the answers are no, then Mr. Putin will have every incentive to cut his losses and step back from the brink. Just to take us off the air, Michael, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I don't see the concessions forthcoming. Right. And part of the reason I don't see them forthcoming is the problem with concessions resulting from course of diplomacy is you don't know what concessions you'll be asked to make next, right? Yep. People are gonna come back to hit you up once they have a theory of the case that you're responsive to course of diplomacy. Right. And they might get the first of their demands this time and they're gonna come back for the other two later, right? Right, no, I agree I, with you. I don't see concessions coming and I don't think we should see concessions coming. Yeah, I also don't think this is a bluff on the Russian side. I don't see Moscow backing down. I don't see Putin walk away with nothing and say, hey, you know, uh, you know, I kind of gave it, we gave it the college try. I really don't see it that way. And I I think that the, they're probably, the calculus is, and I'll put this briefly, not between, you know, war and not war, but there, I think there's an assumption on the Russian side that there's a real cost to an action, that they may have to use force anyway to resolve this down the line. And so it's more weighing the risk and cost of war now or later versus yeah. later, which is seen as higher. That's when leaders, when they start to rationalize and get emotional about this question, that's when they begin to think that it's better to take the risk of war now than having to do it later anyway. And 
they see the gains that is the thing they are negotiating with use of force, the potential, the potential political end there, as being long term, as being permanent. Whereas when you threaten sanctions and these other things, they may think that that's ultimately temporary, right? Mm. Because the, the consequences, the downside might be temporary, but they might see their gains as long term and permanent. All right. Well, on that happy note, I will take us off the air. Watch this space. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Mount Burton, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, where he is still hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Kali, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael, as always, thank you for the enlightening, albeit somewhat depressing, conversation. Well, Brian, great to be with you back on your podcast. Great to have you on. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, making all of us sound a whole lot better than we do in real life and cleaning up my many messes. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that really helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, as always, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.